Well, this morning we'll take our Bibles and open them to the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 4 as we are working our way through the book of Hebrews, talking about living with confidence in Christ. And today we find ourselves in chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. And I was asked this week, uh, when someone heard that there were missionaries coming, they asked if the missionaries were going to be preaching over the next couple Sundays. And Courtney did preach last time, but the other missionaries coming uh, their calling is not preaching, and so they like to share, but they would rather not preach. So I'll be preaching over the next couple of weeks, even though we'll get some updates from missionaries as they are able to visit us and uh, tell us what the Lord is doing on the mission field. But today we find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. So would you please stand in honor of God's word as it is read. Before I read, would you pray with me the prayer on the screen? Show me your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths, guide me in your truth, and teach me. For you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Amen. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it, for we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath and my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience." For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Amen. You may be seated. Today, God wants us to succeed where Israel in the past failed. Today, God wants us to succeed where Israel in the past failed. Israel will discover failed to enter God's rest. Now, I'd like to use a little bit of an object lesson, at least to help us visualize this. If I'm going to put a, a strip of tape on the floor this morning, as if to be the line that Israel had the cross. It's just painter's tape, which doesn't stick to the floor. 
And if you would this morning, as you see this blue line on the floor, if you would imagine that this is the line that Israel had to cross entering into the promised land. You may remember Israel found themselves as slaves in Egypt. And God called Moses to go back to Egypt. He spoke to him in a burning bush and said, go back, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And so Moses heads back. His brother Aaron joins him. They address Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardens his heart, and God hardens his heart. And as a result, he says no. And the Israelites are living under the oppression of Egypt as slaves. And so God says, I will display my wonders, and he sends plagues upon them. And there's ten plagues. You can walk through those plagues that most likely God sends to show Egypt that the gods they believe in are false gods. And God brings the plagues. At the last plague, when the firstborn son of every family in Egypt dies, Pharaoh says they may go. And so Israel heads out of Egypt. They come to the Red Sea, and now they find themselves between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's changed his mind again, and the army of Pharaoh is behind, chasing after them to catch all those who had been slaves in Egypt. Why should they let their free work workers go? And so the people cry out, what are we going to do? And Moses has had ten plagues on Egypt. He tells the people not to fear. He holds a staff over the waters and parts the Red Sea. And the people of Israel, God's people, walk through on dry ground. When Pharaoh comes behind, the Egyptians are drowned in the sea. They come into the Sinai Peninsula. And there on the Sinai Peninsula, God meets them on Mount Sinai and gives them the Ten Commandments, and His laws to guide them and direct them as a people. By day, it says in Scripture, He led them with a cloud through the desert, at night with a pillar of fire. He gives them instructions for the tabernacle that He might dwell in their midst. When they get hungry, He sends manna and He sends quail. He does all of this with a promise that as they leave Egypt, He will bring them to the land of Canaan a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will go into what's called the promised land. And so they've seen God do all of this, and they come to this line. And when they get to this line, God says to them, send 12 spies, one for each tribe of Israel, into the land of Canaan. And so 12 spies go in, and they search out the land, and they bring back a cluster of grapes back to the Israelites, and they show people the fruit of the land and the goodness of the land. And two of the spies have confidence in God that God can help them conquer the land. Joshua and Caleb are those two. But the other ten spies say, there is no way. We cannot conquer the land. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes, Scripture says. It says, there's no way we can do it. And God's people doubt and are afraid. And we read earlier in the service from the book of Numbers where God's people decided and they say we should find a new leader and we should go back to Egypt. And now we come to this passage in Hebrews centuries later where God tells us the Israelites failed to enter God's rest. 
They came to the line, they came to the promised land. Had they trusted God, God would have given them the victory and they could have gone in and possessed what God had promised to them. But instead, in his anger, he sends them back into the wilderness and says, for the next 40 years you will wander in the wilderness until the generation that has doubted me and disobeyed me dies in the desert, except for Joshua and Caleb who had faith. And they will lead those of the next generation back to a line where they will cross the Jordan River and conquer the promised land. Israel failed to enter God's rest. Now let's pause for a moment. Here in this passage, you'll notice the word rest appears many times. What is God's rest? In this passage, we discover God's rest is a very obvious thing. It's referring to the promised land, the land of Canaan, the land described as flowing with milk and honey. It is that. And so in this passage, though, as it talks about rest, is, that's what, is that what it's always referring to? Is it saying there's a particular place for a particular group of people, God's people, to live and to dwell? Well, no, it has a broader reference, as we see, as it goes all the way back to creation. And then in the book of Hebrews, as it also looks forward. What is rest? Now, I can tell you this. There's a lot of commentaries written about what is rest. And I would like to give you just a simple definition that is not nuanced, but I hope it is simple and helpful. And that is, I'm going to borrow a phrase from a singer when I was a kid. There was a singer named Stephen Curtis Chapman. He had a song, There's No Better Place on Earth Than the Road That Leads to Heaven. And I thought, that's a pretty good description of God's rest. It is the road that leads to heaven. The promised land was just a foretaste of it. And that's why the author of Hebrews can say they didn't enter God's rest. They didn't enter the foretaste of what God had promised them. But for us, it is the road that leads to heaven. Maybe I should take a piece of tape. And if we think of this as being God's rest over here, we can realize that we are on the road, and I can make a road here, the road that leads to heaven. Of course, I don't think God's road in our life often goes straight. A lot of times there's angles to it. But we're on the road that leads to heaven. All of you are watching this thinking, I'm glad he is not a painter. <laughs> There's a lot of truth to that. But on the road that leads to heaven, I, the reason I think that's a helpful analogy is this, because the road that leads to heaven when we're on the road, as the song used to say, there's no better place. Because even on this road, even before we get to heaven, we have the knowledge that our sins are forgiven. We already have peace with God. We have the joy of the Lord. We have fellowship with God, and we have fellowship with his people. The road that leads to heaven is a wonderful place, but it's not the end or the goal, is it? It's just the road, and the road's a wonderful place, but it has a destination. The destination being heaven. Ultimately, where God dwells, that we might dwell with him in his presence, in unhindered fellowship. And so the road that leads to heaven, right now, we anticipate and we experience the fruits of heaven in our own life and our salvation with Christ, but we look forward to all that God has promised, but we haven't gotten there yet, have we? We're on the road that leads to heaven. So God's rest, it is the blessing in the present, but it is also a hope for the future. The blessings that we have from God now, 
based on the hope that we have in the future. And we see that in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews presents us with the fact that God's rest must include the future and our eternity with Him. If we went back to chapter 2, verse 5, Hebrews talks about the world to come. If we jumped ahead to chapter 11, verse 10, it says that he was looking forward, the saints of old were looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. It calls heaven a city. In chapter 11, verse 16, God has prepared a city for the saints. In chapter 12, verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. In chapter 13, verse 14, for here we do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for the city that is to come. In other words, we're on a road to the heavenly city called the New Jerusalem, Mount Zion, all different phrases that the author of Hebrews uses, but we are on the road that leads to heaven. So what is God's rest? It is a present blessing flowing from our future hope in heaven. It is the road that leads to to heaven. And the author said Israel failed to enter God's rest. The promised land being just an example, a, a first fruits, a, a taste of God's salvation that was ultimately being offered to God's people. Israel failed. What God wants you to understand today is this, God's rest, His promise of heaven is still available today. Israel failed to enter it. We must not. God's rest is still available. And the author of Hebrews now works through a, a pretty complex argument following his train of thought as he puts this together. He says, Israel did not enter God's rest. He says, but God's rest does indeed exist. And the first thing he shows us is that God's rest has been available since the time of creation. Back in, if we look at verse 3, the end of verse 3 and verse 4, it says this, And yet his work, that is God's work, has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day God rested from all of his work. So the author of Hebrews says this, We, God's people, believe that there is a rest, that God is at rest. It doesn't mean he's napping. It doesn't mean he's sleeping. I've always told my wife, I said, if you could get paid for taking a nap, I would be a millionaire because I am an excellent napper. I can sleep any time in a day. Some people say they're morning people. Some people say they're night people. I'm like, I can sleep in the morning. I can sleep at night. I can sleep in the middle of the day. If it, but it's not talking about taking a nap. It's talking about the rest, the peace, the fellowship, the joy, the abundance, the goodness of God. And it started all the way back at creation, where six days God created the world, and then on the seventh day, he rested. You might think of it this way. In six days, God creates the world, and the climax of creation, you have any idea what the climax of creation is? It comes on day six, when God pauses and said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Let him rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. And God makes mankind in his image and likeness. That is the climax. However, what's amazing is that is not the goal of creation. God's creating us in his image as the climax, but the goal is the seventh day, the day he rests, the day when he can spend in fellowship with those whom he has created in his image. It is the unhindered fellowship that he chooses to have with 
the people he has created. And so, the author of Hebrews says, God's rest, his unhindered fellowship has been available ever since creation, when on the seventh day he rested. But Israel failed to enter that rest. Now, he can hear his Jewish audience asking a question then. It's not a question we might be prone to ask, but it's what they would probably say. They'd say, you're right. You know, Moses, when he led the Israelites, they failed to, to cross the line to believe God to enter into the promised land. They didn't enter God's rest. They went back. They wandered all around the desert until another generation. But the next generation, what about them? What about them? Didn't Joshua... Didn't Joshua bring the Israelites to the promised land? And didn't he lead them across the Jordan River? Didn't he conquer Jericho and start to conquer the promised land? Joshua led them into God's rest, right? And that's what the Jewish people would, that would be the question that would come into their mind. And he notes that in this passage. He says, God's rest was, not, was unrealized at the time of Joshua. Verse 8 says, for if... Joshua had given them rest. Yes, Joshua led them into the promised land, but that wasn't all God had for his people. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. In other words, the land wasn't all God had for his people. In fact, later in Hebrews, it's going to say, only together with us in the heavenly city will all God's people be made perfect. So God's rest was unrealized at the time of Joshua. The way the author of Hebrews knows this is then he looks to a quote from Psalm 95 where God's rest is announced during the time of David. And he says, David said this in verse 7, Therefore God again said a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David. Now don't get lost there. He says a long time later. Moses failed to lead him into God's rest, so they came back. Joshua comes along, he leads him into the promised land and says, so we're in God's rest. And the author of Hebrews says, no, no, no. And his Jewish argument is this. We know that after Joshua, years and years later, King David shows up. And when King David shows up, this is after the time of Joshua, when King David shows up, he makes the statement, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And David talks about the need for God's people to still enter his rest. And he says, if David could say it afterwards, then Joshua must not have fulfilled it. He said, so God's rest is still available today. And that's where he comes down here in verses 9 through 11. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Israel failed to enter God's rest. You can work through the line of his argumentation about Joshua and David and all, but his point is this. Israel failed to enter God's rest. We today need to succeed where Israel failed. And the danger is that we will fail as well. And God will hold us accountable just like he held Israel accountable. In fact, that's why this next passage, we often quote it when talking about the Bible, but we, we separate it from 
all of this talk about God's rest, starting in verse 12. For, you notice that? For, the reason why we have to succeed where Israel failed is because, it's for verse 12, because or for the word of God is living and active. And the reference here isn't to all of Scripture. In fact, all of Scripture hasn't even been written yet. We're only in the book of Hebrews. The book of Revelation hasn't even been written yet at this point. When it says the Word of God, the Word is this. Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. God's Word, and, and we can apply it to all of Scripture, absolutely. But God's Word, His proclamation, do not harden your hearts as Israel did. God's word will hold us accountable. And God says there is great, Israel failed to believe and obey and enter God's rest. They failed on the road, you might say this, they were on the road that leads to heaven and they chickened out. And the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of Christians saying, you're on the road that leads to heaven. Don't chicken out now. We've talked about over the last several weeks, there's a good chance author of Hebrews was writing to Jewish people who had become Christians. Because of their Christian faith, there's a good chance that they're facing persecution. If, they're, if they happen to be the Christians who are in Rome, there's a good chance that they're going to be forced. They passed the law in Rome during the time of the early church that all the Christians had to leave the city of Rome, which meant leaving behind all of their possessions and their wealth, going and finding a new job, but losing all of their material possessions and moving away from family. So there's, very, there's the possibility. Maybe these are Jewish Christians. They're on the road that leads to heaven. All of a sudden they realize, I'm about to lose all my wealth. I'm about to lose my home. My family members who aren't Christians, they can stay in Rome in the city because they're Jewish and that's an accepted religion, but I, a follower of Christ, can't. Maybe I should give up on this Christianity thing and go back to my Judaism. Just like Israel wanted to go back to Egypt, the early Christians are being tempted to go back to their Judaism. That part of Hebrews is clear. Wherever these Christians were, whatever they were facing, they're tempted to go back. And the author of Hebrews, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, don't chicken out now. But the challenge comes also to us. We are on the road that leads to heaven, but we are not there yet. And God says to us, you may not stop and turn back. You may not get distracted. You must continue down this path of faithfulness. Because God will hold us accountable by his word. And God doesn't play around here. He takes it seriously. This phrase, if you read through verse 12 through verse 13... Do you realize how serious and how penetrating is the judgment of God? It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. I told Pastor Ben this week, because he asked me about the sermon, what I was going to be preaching on and what I was going to say about it. I said, do you realize how serious this is? The idea of a double-edged sword here, this isn't just a little pocket knife. This is the executioner's sword blade. In fact, another word in this passage, scholars say, is the same word used to take a person's head, to bend it backward, and to decapitate them. It's saying that God's word, he will one day hold people accountable, and he will judge us for our obedience and faithfulness to his word or our disobedience and unfaithfulness to his word. He doesn't 
fool around in the passage. And he says, it penetrates even to dividing soul, spirit, joints, and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The whole point is this. You might look like a Christian. God knows deep in your heart whether you are one. He sees your attitudes and your thoughts. Whatever you put on on the outside, whatever display you have, you can't hide your heart from God. He will judge you down to your soul's intent. And this author of Hebrews, he doesn't cut us any slack. He says, nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The judge of heaven is a perfect judge who will know every detail of our lives. That's why at the beginning, chapter 4 Verse 1 says, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. This is one of the times, I hope you have, I have a 1984 NIV edition, uh, version of the Bible, but if you have a different version of the Bible, it doesn't say let us be careful because that is a weak translation. Every single scholar agrees with it. The word there is afraid. Let us be afraid not to enter into God's rest, not to walk the road that leads to heaven and to reach the goal. It says, let us be afraid. And to make it fit into English, translating it from the Greek, it shows up later. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, but the first word in the Greek is this, be afraid not to enter. Now, I know that's not popular in our culture. We talk about God is love and God is caring, and that's all very true. But the author of Hebrews here, he, this is what it, he wants to make sure doesn't happen. He goes, Israel messed up. People down through the ages have been following God, and then they turn back, and they choose to go back to their old way of life and to live in their old ways because sometimes following God gets hard. And he says, let me make it plain and clear to you. It is much more dangerous to turn your back on God and to go back to your former ways than it is to go through the difficulties of being faithful and obedient today, knowing that ultimately we're on the road that leads to heaven. And so he just doesn't want us to go down the wrong path. He doesn't want us to give up. That's the reason why he's being hard. It's the reason why he's using such strong language. He wants God's people to realize, well, however difficult it is, it's worth it. Because the danger is so much greater to turn our back on the road that leads to heaven. Like Israel, we are accountable to enter God's rest. We are accountable. So how do Christians today fail to enter God's rest? You ever think about that? So if we're on the road that leads to heaven, maybe we should just use the term heaven. How do Christians today fail to finish the course on the road that leads to heaven? This part isn't in the text, so you can disagree with me. I just came up with some ideas to share with you. Those early Christians, their challenge was they faced persecution. We saw two weeks ago the, that the word apostasy, they were tempted to apostatize, is in the Greek text, to turn back on their faith and to go back to their Judaism, to turn away from Christ. How are we tempted to, 
today to fail to enter God's rest? I think one way is this. We deny it. We in the Christian life can reach a point where we deny it. This week was kind of a, it was a, it was just a little bit of a downer of a week for me. I, I listened to a podcast. I shouldn't have listened to it because it just discouraged me. And uh, by God's grace, he gave me an article later in the week about the exact same thing to kind of encourage me. And then I came across another podcast and it discouraged me. But um, because I found that there, there are Christians who, after walking with God, they're denying their faith. I, so I started off the week um, hearing about a, a gentleman. You probably haven't heard of his name. His name's Bart Ehrman. And he is a famous uh, Bible scholar. And Bart Ehrman did not grow up in a Christian home, but as a teenager invited to some youth event, he was born again. Those are his words, not mine. And Bart Ehrman gave his life to the Lord. He loved the Lord. He decided he, God had called him in the ministry, went studied at Moody Bible Institute, went on and got a, a master's degree at Trinity Evangelical Divinity of School. From there, he wanted to study under who was then the greatest Greek scholar in the entire world, Bruce Metzger, went to Princeton Theological Seminary and studied under him. While he was studying, he also pastored a Presbyterian church. In the interview with Bart Ehrman, and this was a couple years ago, Somebody said, Bart, what happened? He said, today do you believe in Jesus or God? And he said, no. He said, said, what happened? He said, I looked at the world and all the evil in the world and all the kids that starve to death every day and AIDS rampant through Africa and all these different things, and I just determined there can't be a God. And the, the interviewer asked, and the interviewer was Christian, said, so what happens when you die? He said, I just believe it's over. And he denied it. He would take this line and say, I'm not going to cross into God's promised rest. I'm not on the road that leads to heaven. I don't believe there is a road that leads to heaven. I don't believe there's a heaven. By God's grace, I said later in the week, I read another article of a, of a guy who uh, is a debater. and He and Bart Ehrman debate each other uh, in, in colleges, universities around the United States. And, um, and he's a devout Christian who disagrees with everything Bart Ehrman says. And Bart Ehrman disagrees with everything he says. He says, but we've learned to love each other, and I keep pointing the light of Jesus Christ to him. He said, after our last debate, he said, we walked over across the stage to shake hands. He said, we've become friends. We've debated so much, and I've tried to reach out to him. He said, I gave him a hug, and I said, Bart, you know the story of the prodigal son as well as anybody. He said, we're waiting for you to come home. Maybe you heard in the news, some of you may remember if you're around my age, back in uh, the 1990s, there was a best-selling book for Christians, I Kiss Dating Goodbye by Joshua Harris. And um, I didn't read that book. I dated my wife. So, uh, <laughs> the, uh, but, but it was disheartening this, this week when uh, it came out. Well, it came out two weeks ago. Joshua Harris and his wife are divorcing. Then it came out this week on Instagram. He said, Whatever I did believe, he said, I know a lot about Christ. And Joshua Harris wrote, I did kiss dating goodbye, became a national bestseller, and then he went on to become a megachurch pastor of thousands. When he turned about 40, 41 years old, he's just a year or two older than I am, he decided to go, on to to go back to seminary and complete his education. And uh, this past week, he said, whatever a Christian is, he said, I'm not that. He said, I don't believe this line exists anymore. And I'd like to say that um, that is only for those two guys. But the truth is this, 
there's a lot of kids that grow up in church and they go to vacation Bible school and they go over to youth group and they love Jesus and they head out the camp and all oh, the tears stream at the altar calls and then they go off to college and by the time college is all done, they say, I don't believe this. They're on the road that leads to heaven. And God today says, you gotta, you gotta succeed where Israel failed. You've got to be faithful until you reach the goal. And so many today in our culture deny the faith having walked with the Lord before. And you might say, well, what do we do about that, Pastor? One thing we can do as God's people is this. We can, at least in a cursory way, learn a little bit about why we believe in Christ. Not just what we believe, but why we believe Decades ago, an author by the name of Paul Little wrote a book. One was what we believe, the other was why we believe. It's called apologetics. Why do we believe? Why can we trust the Bible? Why can we believe Christ rose from the dead? I usually recommend for people, if they don't know where to start, then start with Lee Strobel's. His are an easy read, but good research. The case for Christ, the case for faith, the case for miracles. If you don't like to read, they've made movies and videos and documentaries. You can do that. An interesting little book, uh, Dinner with a Perfect Stranger. They made that into a movie too. And just, it's, it's somebody who gets to sit and have dinner with Jesus and ask him, well, why does this happen? What about this? All the questions and challenges they face. And uh, they have dinner with Jesus and he offers them answers. Helping us as Christians think through why do we believe? You see, some deny God's salvation. Others, they distort God's truth. Others, they look at this and they think, well, I'm on the road that leads to heaven. And given our culture and what our culture values and all that our culture wants to teach us through movies and podcasts and magazines and following people on Instagram and everywhere else, they don't so much deny that there's a road that leads to heaven. They just say, well, there's a nice road that leads to heaven. But you know what? I've come to the place, I think there's another road that leads to heaven. And they start making another path that leads to, he leads to heaven. And they come along and say, well, yeah, and you know what? And I think this is a nice way, a nice road that leads to heaven. And I'm going to make this path that leads to heaven. And they do that. I remember several years ago when a well-known pastor named Rob Bell pastored up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, he came out with a book entitled Love Wins, in which he said, you know what? It doesn't matter what road you take. Ultimately, God loves everybody. Everybody's going to make it. And another Christian wrote back, bye-bye, Rob Bell. And we distort. We haven't denied it. They don't necessarily deny Sure, you can believe in Jesus. You'll go to heaven. But you can and you fill in the blank. Do whatever else you want to do. Believe whatever else you want to believe. You can distort the truth. And I think today's church, especially in America, is struggling to know what is right and what is true. I was talking with a friend just this week, and he said in his own denomination, he said, I don't know if it'll be one year or it'll be five years. He said, but we will approve of things that 2,000 years, over 2,000 years, Christians have never approved of nor never believed in. He said, but one of the largest denominations in America will be there in the next one to five years. It's just a matter of how to jump through all the hoops. 
He said, because the gospel has become not Jesus who died on the cross and rose from the dead and is coming again. The gospel has become, how can we just see social justice happen in the world? And social justice is important. Don't, I don't want to downplay that. But the gospel is Jesus Christ died, buried, risen, and coming again. And so we have all these different paths. And today, our churches are being tempted to distort the truth. People wonder, well, how do we fight against that? First, I think it's realizing what's new and trendy isn't what's best. Usually what is best is to go back to what Christians have always taught and believed down through the ages. And the missionary church doesn't come from a creedal background. We don't recite creeds in church um, and most of our churches don't do that, but I have found it helpful just as a way to anchor theology, and that is to tell people, learn the Apostles' Creed. It's not the Bible, it, it's not binding on our faith, but it's a short summary of our faith. And I can tell you right now, I know a half a dozen people that I have pastored that today are attending churches that I would say are part of an occult because they do not believe in the basic tenets of the faith, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they look like a church. They even sing the same songs we sing. They read out the same Bible we sing. But they do not believe the historic tenets of the Christian faith. And the problem is that so many Christians today don't even pay attention when they walk into the church doors. Does this church teach? I'm not talking about differences between Baptists and Presbyterians and all the little intricacies of Calvinists and Arminians and the Wesleyans and all the different groups. I'm talking about just the historic tenets of the Christian faith. You could start by learning the Apostles' Creed and understanding that as a framework for what Christians have all believed as a short statement down through the centuries. Another thing we do, not only do we distort the truth, sometimes we distract ourselves. And I think this is a huge temptation for us. We get distracted. We get distracted from the people of God because here we are on the road that leads to heaven we're walking on the road that leads to heaven. You realize this, the road that leads to heaven, you don't travel it alone. You travel it with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's like, it's like the yellow brick road. Remember that? And the Wizard of Oz, there's a, it's not just one person on there. We've got the Tin Man. We've got the Scarecrow. We've got little Toto even walking along. We have the Cowardly Lion. And so we walk this path with others, but I think sometimes we get distracted I don't know about you, how many of you when you travel and you're on a road, you're going on a long trip, how many of you stop at every rest stop along the way? No one? We always picked up my uncle. I love my uncle, lives in Chicago. And I don't know that he really does it, but we would always joke that he make a six-hour trip into an eight-hour trip because he stop at every rest stop. He goes, that's what they're there for, aren't you? You're supposed to stop, rest, get out and stretch, use the restroom, you know, take a break so you're fresh to drive again. I'm like, I only stop if I got to stop. Otherwise, we're going. We're on the way. we got a place to go. But I think in the Christian life, we get distracted. We're on the road that leads to heaven, and all of a sudden, we're like, hey, you know what? There's nice rest stops, and they're good rest stops. I like rest stops. They come in handy if you need them, but there's rest stops. We come in and say, you know what? The most important thing in life, maybe I want to stop here and focus on my family. Family's a good thing. God created the family. He made marriage. He said husbands should love their wives like Christ loved the church. But let me ask you, is Jesus Lord or is your family Lord of your life? Or did you get stopped at a rest stop and thought, I don't need to worry about God's plan. I'm right here. For example, 
How many parents really don't want God's will for their life if God says, I want your child to grow up and be a missionary? Do you want them on the road that leads to heaven or do you want them at a rest stop on the road that leads to heaven? But there's rest stops. I mean, how many things can distract us? We're driving, we're on the road that leads to heaven and all of a sudden, hey, there's a rest stop. We can get wrapped up in our work. And how many of us, we give our lives to our work and this is really what our life is about. Or maybe it's the rest stop my tape's ripping here. Maybe it's the rest stop of, of sports or hobbies. Maybe it's traveling or vacations. Whatever it may be, it distracts us from God. And the next thing we know, our eyes aren't on the prize of heaven and being in the presence of Christ. And as we sang earlier, seeing Christ face to face, the real goal of life for so many people is this. How do I get from Monday to Friday? Christians don't live their life for the weekend. Christians live their life for heaven. And we don't let anything distract us on the way. These are all good things. And in the right place, God blesses them and honors them. And we should receive them as God's good gifts. But we have to realize the goal is the road that leads to heaven. Of course, we can get distracted. And finally, sometimes we just dispute God's plan didn't Israel do that? On their way, before they ever even got to the line, Israel's on the way, and they start grumbling, don't they? The place is called Masa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled because they tested the Lord. They quarreled with God and they tested him. That's what Masa and Meribah mean. And they quarreled with God. Is this really the best plan? Think about Jonah. God says, hey, you're on the road that leads to heaven. That road's going to happen to go through Nineveh, and you're going to preach there to the people repent. And Jonah says, uh-uh. And we want... We really want to dispute with God what's going on. We'd say, you know what, God, I want the road that leads to heaven. But I think rather than this little zigzag, think about this, God. We could just make a shortcut here. If we would go from here, and we could cut across here, and this shortcut would be really nice. And God looks at us, and he says, yeah, that's not my plan. He says, my plan goes through Nineveh, Jonah. My plan goes this direction. And sometimes we dispute with God. We dispute with God when God says, you know what? Before we go any farther, I want you to go and apologize to this person. We think, God, they don't even care. It doesn't even matter. And God says, no, we're not going any farther until you apologize. Or maybe somebody's wronged us and God says, you know what? You need to forgive that person. Somebody says, no, I'm on the road that leads to heaven. We're both going to get there, but I don't need it. And God says, no, my road includes forgiveness. And maybe you're on the road that leads to heaven, and God says, you know what? I met a guy once. Uh, he was in his 80s when I met him. And somebody said this. They said he spent his entire life feeling guilty. He said he was called to be a pastor, and he told God no. And he sits in church every Sunday all the way until his 80s feeling guilty because he didn't do what God wanted him to do. And he believed in God. He's on the road that leads to heaven, and God said, hey, I want you to... I want you to go into ministry. And he said, no, I don't think so. And he went this way. We dispute God's plan for us. Brothers and sisters, we're on the road that leads to heaven. The goal is to be with Christ. And there are more 
things than we can imagine to distract us on our path. And so what does the author of Hebrews say? He says in verse 11, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Many of you have heard me tell the story about James Dobson and his interview that was to happen with uh, Pistol Pete Maravich, a great basketball player. And I'm going to tweak that story just a little bit. I think we'll still be faithful to the heart of this story. But if you haven't heard it, James Dobbs had used to have a radio program, still has a radio program, but a different one now, but Focus on the Family, heard by, at one point, up to 14 million people a week on radio. And he had invited a famous basketball player, Pistol Pete Maravich, to come and to be on his program. Pistol Pete Maravich was a basketball great. If I'm not mistaken, he still holds the college record for most points scored which is astounding because in his freshman year, he did not play basketball. He, he did not qualify for whatever reason uh, to play basketball that year. So he only played for three years. During those three years, the three-point line did not exist, so he never scored a three-pointer. Yet, only with two-pointers and free-throw shots, he still holds the NCAA record for most points scored, a phenomenal score. Pistol Pete Maravich was a Christian. James Dobson, uh, he had gone on to the NBA where he won plenty of awards and um, he retired from the NBA, and James Thompson said, I want to have you on my program and have you share your testimony about Christ. And so they made the arrangements to fly Pistol Pete out to Boulder, Colorado, where folks on the family has their headquarters. And James Thompson called him up ahead of time. He said, hey, you know what? He said, there's a group of us guys. I'm a little embarrassed to ask, but there's a group of us guys who we get together um, once a week in the gymnasium, and we play a little pickup basketball. Nothing competitive. We're just a bunch of old hacks that are trying to stay in shape. He said, but we would be really excited if you would consider coming and playing with us. And Pistol Pete said, hey, I'd be happy to come and play. And so uh, the day came for the interview, and sure enough, early in the morning, um, the group of guys gathered in the gymnasium, and Pistol Pete showed up, and, and he played with them. And, and they had fun, you know, running up and down the court, making layups, shooting three-point shots, and kind of bumping each other and pulling tricks on each other. They had, but they had a good time. After about a half hour of play, the guy said, hey, we got we to gotta take a break. I, some of us got to use the restroom. Others got to get a drink of water. said, let's, uh, let's take a five-minute break, and we'll be back out here. And so James Dobson walked up to Pistol Pete Maravich. He said, man, I'm so excited that you came and played with us. He said, what an honor to play with such a baseball great. And baseball, sorry, basketball great. And... Uh, he said, he said, just thanks for joining us. I, I, we're delighted in that. And Pistol Pete said, you know, it's been wonderful. He said, you wouldn't believe it, but I haven't picked up a basketball in a couple of years. He said, my back issues and knee issues have been so bad that I haven't wanted to play. And he said, I'm out here today. And he said, I feel wonderful. He said, my joints feel good. My back feels good. And it's, it is so much fun. I forgot how much I love the game of basketball. James Opson looked at him and said, you know what? He said, I got to go get a drink of water. He said, but uh, we'll be back out here and play in a few minutes. Pistol Pete said, that's great. James Thompson turned, he walked away. And as he walked away, he heard a thud behind him. He looked behind him, and there was Pistol Pete laying on the floor. And he thought, oh, man. He already figured out Pistol Pete was a, was a prankster. He said, oh, I wonder what he's up to now. And he walked up to Pistol Pete, and then he realized Pistol Pete was having a seizure. And he got down, and he grabbed Pistol Pete. He actually reached and held his tongue so that he wouldn't swallow his tongue during the seizure. And he waited, and when the seizure was done, Pistol Pete's life was gone. 
News crews showed up that day because a famous NBA player had died. James Dobson got to give his testimony and share Pistol Pete's testimony on national TV. Came a day that he didn't expect. He went home that night. It was late, he was tired, but he, he wanted to talk to his son Ryan. And James Dobson got home and he went into his son Ryan's room. His son was already in bed and he rubbed his back said, hey, you awake, buddy? He said, yeah. He said, Ryan, I want to talk to you. So they sat on the side of the bed together. He said, did you hear what happened today? He said, yeah, Dad, I heard. I heard the bad news. He goes, yeah. He said, one day, he said, that's going to be me. He said, one day you're going to get the news that it's not Pistol Pete. It's not some other person you've known from sports or television. He said, one day you're just going to hear the news that it's your dad. He said, on that day, he said, I want you to know something right now. He said, when that day comes, you know this, that I will be on that other side. I will be in heaven on the other side of that shore waiting for you. And he looked at his son, Ryan, and he said, Ryan, you remember one thing today. You get there. You get there, son. Because I will be waiting and cheering you on. You get there. And isn't that what Hebrews is going to say when we get to chapter 11? That Abraham got there, and David got there, and Daniel got there, and Moses got there. And he comes to us today, and he says, there is a whole world that wants to distract you on the road that leads to heaven. And the temptations are real. And Christians down through the ages have chosen to deny their faith. And Israel failed, but you, people of gospel center, you get there. You, with determination, with the, all the effort of God's grace at work within you, you get there. And if there's something in your life today that is distracting you, that is hindering you, that is causing you doubt, God comes to you and says, you determine today, get there by his grace. You get there because there is no greater goal in life than the road that leads to heaven and fellowship with Jesus Christ. That is our goal. Will you bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, Lord, the threat's real. Israel failed to enter your rest. Hebrews was written to a group of Christians, and the threat was real. They were thinking of turning their back on Christ and going back to Judaism. And God, how real is the threat today for us who are here on the road that leads to heaven to say maybe it's just better if we head back to Egypt, back to our old life. It'd be a lot easier. But I pray today that every person in here, by the grace of God, gets there. May we make it our aim, our priority, our goal in life to see Jesus face to face. We love you, Jesus. Guard us, protect us, empower us to be faithful pilgrims on this journey. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said,
Will you stand as we sing our closing song?